0: And I am, for the 52nd and final time, your host. Our guest today, joining us for this season one finale, is Robert P. George. Robbie George is a semi-professional banjo player. (laughs) But, But I should say more. He is also the director of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions and the university's McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence. He has served as chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and on the President's Council on Bioethics. He is the author of many excellent books, including Making Men Moral and The Clash of Orthodoxies. He graduated from Swarthmore College and has accumulated more degrees since then. Those degrees have initials. Those of MTS and JD from Harvard, those of DPhil, BCL, DCL, and DLIT from Oxford, I'll let listeners Google those to figure out what they mean. Robbie George, welcome back to Madison's Notes.
1: It's a pleasure, Nino, and it's been so wonderful having you as our uh, host for the Madison's Notes uh, podcast from its inaugural edition all the way through number 52 now. It's
0: uh, especially fitting to have you back here for this final episode of season one as you were here for the first episode of season one. And, and so now we'll turn to the business At hand. Uh, When the name Robert P. George is spoken, you'll usually find an adjective attached. Depending on who's speaking, that adjective may (laughs) vary. But one is relatively constant conservative. So we wonder what does it mean to be a conservative in America? What is to be conserved?
1: Well, you're right. I'm an American conservative. And conservatism in America is a bit different from. European conservatism. American conservatism is not a conservatism of blood and soil or throne and altar. Uh, Our national unity, we as a nation, are not integrated around a shared uh, religious faith. We have many different religious faiths in the United States or a shared ethnicity. There are many ethnicities, different races, National backgrounds and so forth in the United States. We are, after all, a nation of immigrants. So, if we are not a blood and soil nation and not a throne and altar nation, if what's to be conserved is not a conservatism of blood and soil or throne and altar, what is it? We American conservatives want to conserve the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. We believe that there are certain self-evident truths that all men are created equal. Every member of the human family is the moral equal, equal in worth and dignity to every other member of the human family. We believe that all human beings are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, rights not given to them by government, by a president, by a Congress, by a King, by a parliament, and therefore rights that cannot legitimately be taken away or violated by any merely human power. We believe these rights and duties related to them come from the hand of a more than merely human power, from the hand of Almighty God himself. And we are ultimately as individuals and as a nation answerable to him for how we exercise our rights and for respecting basic human rights. That principle of equality is very foundational, very fundamental to American conservatism as I understand it. Hmm. We believe we conservatives that each and every member of the human family, irrespective of race or ethnicity or sex, of course, but also an equally irrespective of age or size or stage of development or condition of dependency is the bearer of profound, inherent and equal dignity. We recognize and we celebrate the fact that we are different in many, many ways. We come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different beliefs. Uh, Some are stronger, some are not so strong, some are prettier, some are less pretty uh some are smarter some not uh there are all these differences and sometimes those differences are relevant the 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 difference in coordination and strength and and uh athletic prowess is a legitimate ground for hiring some people as nba basketball players or nfl football players and not other people so those differences can be relevant in various contexts but They are not what's fundamental. When it comes to what's fundamental, that is the worth of every individual. Or what we might call the dignity of every individual. All are equal. The strongest and weakest are equal. The weakest is the equal of the strongest. The cognitively disabled person is every bit the equal in fundamental dignity of the great scientist or mathematical genius, a person who is homely in appearance is every bit the equal of a handsome celebrity or a beautiful uh, actress. This principle of equality has not been affirmed, this principle of fundamental moral equality, the equal worth and dignity of each and every member of the human family has not been affirmed by all cultures throughout history we formally committed to it as a nation in our declaration of independence but we have struggled throughout the entire history of our country to live up to it Hmm. it was violated from the very beginning with our original sin of slavery a failure to treat the black man or woman as equal in worth and dignity to the white man or woman and so forth but we american conservatives at our best when we're being true to ourselves, when we are being true Americans, good Americans, we affirm and live by the principle of profound, inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. And we Americans, we American conservatives believe in the constitution of the United States. We do not claim it is the only possible just constitution. That is not our claim. We do not say it is uniquely just. There could be no other constitution that is just. We do not claim it is perfect. The constitution itself contains provisions for its amendment. And we have relied on those provisions to amend our constitution. Sometimes I think not for the best, sometimes (laughs) for the best. But we believe our constitution is a good constitution and it's one worth sticking to. And so as believers in our constitution, we believe for example, in the separation of powers. We want to limit the powers Uh, of uh, anyone over anyone else by separating in our national government, the executive, legislative, and judicial powers. And we want to preserve liberty and prevent tyranny by, among other things, but very centrally, having our national government as a government of delegated and enumerated powers, not a government with plenary authority that uh, exercises general jurisdiction. We believe it's better to leave general jurisdiction closer to the people in the states and the municipalities. We want our national government be strong and effective, but limited. And so we limit authority, especially when it comes to the national government, which is so powerful. We limit authority in different ways. By separating powers, creating a system of checks and balances, by having a system of federalism, so the national government is limited in its authority. Many decisions, important decisions, general police powers, we leave with the states nearer to the people, more accountable to the people, over which the people can exercise supervision, uh, for which there will be easier and better uh, accountability. What do I as an American conservative stand for? What do I wanna conserve? The principles of the constitution and the declaration of independence. This is the way I believe we will best advance, continue to advance the common good, the good of all of us as American citizens uh, to live lives of dignity uh, and to pursue the good uh, in a way that Maximizes the opportunities for all of us to realize our flourishing, our fulfillment.
0: Andrew Breitbart is famous for saying that politics is downstream from culture. You call this claim a half truth and, as such, a practical falsehood. Two questions. Why do you call it a half truth? And how should recognizing this as a half truth inform
1: the way we approach politics and culture? The idea that politics is downstream from culture is often invoked to excuse political action or excuse us from the responsibility Mm -hmm. for political action and political reform on the grounds that we cannot achieve the ultimate goals we wish to achieve in the law and beyond the law without first changing the culture, it becomes a justification for political inaction.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, if it were fully true, it would fully be true, but it's only half true. <laughs> there is truth in the idea that if you want to change law, you should change culture. It is partially true that, part of the truth, I should say, that uh, politics is downstream from culture. But what about the other part? What about the other half? It is equally true that culture is downstream from politics. Mm. Very often law made by political institutions, made by people as active citizens influencing the decisions we make as a people, as a government. It's often true that law shapes culture. So, just as culture shapes law, law also shapes culture. That's the other half of the truth. And law shapes culture, and culture shapes conduct. Hmm. And it shapes more than merely conduct, it shapes values. Very often, the left understands this better than the right, by the way. Very often, if you want to change people's beliefs, people's values, change the law. It's a mistake to suppose, oh, we can't change the law until we change people's values. Hmm. The left understands this. When the belief in uh, eliminating the conjugal idea of marriages, the union of husband and wife was first floated, public opinion was very definitely not on the side of those who wanted to change the law to create same sex partnerships and recognize them as uh, lawful marriages. Uh, but those on the left didn't say well we're going to have to wait till we change the culture in order to change the law they realized that if you want to change the culture then change the law and they organized very effectively and eventually well before they had a majority in the court of public opinion they managed to change the law acting in some cases through state legislatures uh, and then ultimately through the courts and when they changed the law the effect was to change culture and public opinion and public values as well. So if we ask ourselves, how did we get to a position in which I'm told that 60% plus of the American public uh, supports the idea of same sex marriage, not an idea I support, but apparently it's got a strong majority in its favor. Now, how did we get there when we ask the question, how did we get there? The answer is in part, because the law was changed and law is a teacher that's a that's a point that's been made as far back as aristotle mm-hmm. he's absolutely right about it law teaches there's a pedagogical function of law law shapes culture and culture shapes belief and conduct that was the basic thesis of my 1993 book which you kindly mentioned making men moral civil liberties and public morality so that's what i mean you know when i say that uh, the proposition that Uh, laws downstream from culture is a a half-truth. It's not just straightforwardly false, but because it's only part of the truth and leaves out the other part of the truth, truth, it is what I call a practical falsehood.
0: You've been at the vanguard of the American conservative movement for decades. What has the conservative movement done well? And when it has done well, why has it done well? And where has it fallen short? And why, when it has fallen short, has it done so?
1: I believe the area in which the conservative movement has um, fought its noblest battles and where it has remarkable achievements is when it comes to the sanctity of human life, especially with respect to the question of abortion. In 1973, when Roe against Wade was handed down, legalizing abortion throughout the United States, striking down the uh, laws effectively of 50 states, even the most liberal states so the states with the most permissive abortion laws, had whatever remaining uh, prohibitions uh, or restrictions on abortion that were present uh, effectively struck down if you consider Doe versus Bolton, which was incorporated by reference in, in Roe versus Wade. We can go into the details of that for listeners if, you, if you'd like to, but I think you, you understand and many will already understand what I'm talking about here. When that decision was handed down, the next day, uh, the New York Times reported that the Supreme Court had settled the abortion issue. And a lot of people thought it was settled. And a lot of people thought that the United States will go the way of so many European countries, just integrating abortion into the fabric of American life and that um, the pro-life movement would now die uh, and abortion would be uh, acceptable, and there might be a few little battles around the edges, but it would not be a dominant issue in our politics. The conservative movement, the pro-life movement, which at the beginning still had some progressives uh, in it—that's a very rare thing today—but at the beginning, it was a, it was really a a um, coalition of uh, progressives and uh, conservatives. Most of the progressives are now gone, and for all intents and purposes, it functions as part of the. Uh, conservative movement, but it has succeeded in keeping the unborn child in the forefront of the debate. And we are now, I think, probably a matter of weeks from seeing the Supreme Court of the United States reverse Roe versus Wade, and return the issue to the forums of democratic deliberation first in the states, and possibly then in the Congress of Uh, the United States. Almost no one on January 23rd, uh, 1973, the day after Roe versus Wade, would have predicted that the movement would have been able to keep the issue alive, keep the baby, the victim in the forefront of the discussion, and work as effectively as our movement has worked to try to protect unborn human life. When virtually the whole of the elite culture. Bringing the full force of their cultural power to bear has opposed us. We are opposed by the mainstream of universities, the journalistic establishment, the great philanthropies, the business corporations, the wealthy and the powerful are not on the pro-life side. One would have thought they would have crushed us. Mm but they have not been able to do it. We have kept the flag flying, we have kept the cause alive, we have kept the movement together, and I think we're on the verge of an important victory. Now that victory, though very important, will only be a first step toward the goal, which is our ultimate goal, of ensuring that every child is Protected by law and welcomed in life, where we're truly honoring the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family, beginning with the precious child in the womb. There's going to be a lot that needs to happen beyond reversing Roe versus Wade. Reversing Roe versus Wade simply gets us back into the legislative game. Then we're going to have to win legislative battles, and it's going to be very, very difficult. But I have confidence in our movement because we have against all odds, been able to keep the flame burning for, what, nearly 50 years? That is truly extraordinary. And I can't think of an example parallel to it anywhere else in the world. Yeah. So that's one I think we've, we've done well.
0: And why have we done well there, you think? Is it just that the cause is so obviously just? What
1: is it about that cause that has had us find success? I honestly can't. Uh, identify any specific Hmm. factor. Um, I can tell you this, I mean, the people who have been at the center of the pro-life work, the people in the movement have been selfless self-sacrificial people. These are not wealthy people. These are not powerful people. These are not elites. These are, if you go to a pro-life March or you work at a pro-life clinic, uh, if you visit a pro-life clinic even if you're not working if you visit you will find just ordinary men and women not wealthy not powerful not famous not celebrities who are just doing the day-to-day work the political work and the humanitarian work to bring care and concern to women who are in very 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 many cases in very difficult situations because they have a pregnancy at a very inconvenient time a very bad time Often they're in abusive relationships. Often they're under pressure from husbands or boyfriends, uh, family members, parents, employers uh, to have abortions. Often they don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from or how they're going to take care of their child. These are real problems, no question about it. But the pro-life movement has never failed to understand that that we need to love both mother and child. We don't place one against the other, but we refuse to put them into conflict with each other. That we need to reach out in love and care, compassion, concern to mother and child alike. The slogan, Love Them Both, is more than a slogan. It's what goes on every day in the week with birthright centers, people, usually women, sometimes some men, but usually women reaching out to their sisters, helping with baby care, helping with child care, uh, providing uh, baby food, providing diapers, <laughs> uh, helping when the kids get uh, a little older. Uh, it's it's that stuff in addition to the political work, and it's self-sacrificial, selfless work done by ordinary people that has been so impressive to me, and so really inspiring. Occasionally on this podcast,
0: I like to ask horribly unfair questions. These are questions that deserve a book-length treatment, and I just kind of lob them to a guest and make them answer it in a couple of minutes. Um, with that being said, I've never asked such an unfair question as the one I'm about to ask you. What is the most important
1: question to answer in politics? Well, what does the common good require? That's always the question in politics. What does the common good require in these particular circumstances? Hmm. Now, to answer that question, whether we're talking about foreign policy, whether we're talking about economic policy, whether we're talking about environmental policy, whether we're talking about family policy, to answer that question, first you need a sound grasp of true principles. What's the unchanging stuff? What are the basic principles? Some of those of course are enshrined in our Declaration of Independence and Constitution, but we need a grasp of the core principles of political morality, those that that express and reflect Our understanding of the dignity of the human being as a creature made in the very image and likeness of God. We need a a solid grasp of those principles. If you don't have a solid grasp of those principles, then you're never going to be able to answer the question what does the common good require here and now for our economic policy, for our foreign policy, for our domestic policy, family policy, environmental policy, what have you. Now, it would be nice if that were sufficient so that those who do have a sound grasp of true principles of justice, uh, human rights, uh, human dignity. It, it would be great if that's all you needed and then you could immediately move to the right policy yeah. that they would give you the answer, but they don't very often. <laughs> very often, once we've got the right principles, we're still left with a menu of possibilities, all of which are consistent with our fundamental principles of political morality of justice, of human rights, of human dignity, but that we still have to decide. In other words, we have to make not only those foundational moral judgments, but now prudential judgments in light of the specific contingent circumstances we now face. Those circumstances can be shaped by our history, our sociology, by the particular economic or social conditions of the day, Often they have to do with the assessment of threats, threats from foreign powers to American interests or to the United States itself. Sometimes there are threats on the economic side or threats coming from natural natural disasters of various sorts, but we still need sound prudential judgment. And there's no guarantee that the man or woman who has the solid, sound, correct grasp of those fundamental moral principles will also be blessed with excellent prudential judgment. (laughs) But that's what we need in our leaders. It's It's an absolute condition that they have a sound understanding of political morality, that they understand the truth about the human good, human nature, human dignity, human destiny. They have an understanding of the dignity of the human being. But they also need practical prudential judgment they need to know will increasing the minimum wage or increasing it this much have positive or negative effects on the people we're trying to help Hmm. the people at the lower end of the economic ladder what about rent control what about this or that environmental policy what about tax policy What will be the effect on the economy if we raise the rate of taxation, the marginal rate of taxation to 42% or or leave it at wherever it happens to be or lower it? Those judgments are not uh, judgments that we make purely on the basis of a sound understanding of the moral fundamentals. They take a kind of practical wisdom. They need the, the wisdom of, uh, of 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 what uh, Aristotle, what the Greeks would call the uh, *spēdoi*, the the people who who uh, have a sound understanding of the realities of human life, not just the fundamental moral principles, but all the contingent stuff. And we have to recognize that nobody's perfect. Yeah. Nobody's. But Washington wasn't perfect. Lincoln wasn't perfect. They were our greatest statesmen. No one's perfect. Churchill wasn't perfect. De Gaulle wasn't perfect uh you're going to make mistakes and we have to be as a people actually to some extent forgiving of those mistakes and there's a trick in that too there's a there's a difficulty we need to on the one hand hold our leaders accountable but on the other hand not hold them to the standard of perfection because no one will pass it so we need to be forgiving when a statesman makes a mistake recognizing that there but for the grace of god go i we all make mistakes but we also need to hold people accountable for bad judgments for 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 bad errors errors that have terrible sometimes terrible consequences leaving us into a bad war or we shouldn't have been into or failing to go to war when we should have gone to war to stop a bad guy earlier before a hitler or so whoever it is gets uh, uh, completely out of control and so strong that we're going to have to expend yet more blood and treasure uh, to stop him. These are difficult decisions, which are often just not uh, capable of being made purely on the basis of the fundamental moral principles. So that's how I answer your impossible question, Nino. Well, it's a good
0: answer, but I'm going to ask another impossible question, Um, a question that we all need to answer for ourselves. What is my life For one of the most beautiful and terrifying passages in literature, in my opinion, comes in Tolstoy's book, The Death of Ivan Illich, when Ivan Illich is close to death, and the question creeps into his mind, What if my whole life has been wrong? So we must ask, in our lives and on this show, what is the good life?
1: Well, there's not a single uniquely correct best life. It's a mistake to think that there is. Uh, There are many different fundamental human goods, that is, purposes, ends, projects that we have reason to pursue, not simply as means to other ends, but for their own sake. And that wide variety of human goods can be, in every case, instantiated in a countless variety of, of ways. So there are many possible good lives, not just one good life, not just the good life. Uh, now, of course, there are also many bad ways. <laughs> so to uh, to recognize that there are many human goods, many different ways of instantiating those human goods as we lead our lives, acting for those human goods as we lead our lives, recognizing that there's no uniquely best way of life that all of us should try to uh, reach or pursue does not commit us to any kind of relativism. Hmm. Um, justice, um, morality do not, exclude being a lawyer, being a doctor, being an insurance salesman, uh, being a father, being a priest, being a father of a family, (laughs) being a priest who's unmarried as in the western catholic uh, tradition. Uh, There are incommensurable benefits uh, to be realized in any of those uh, choices. And of course they also come with costs. If we choose this route, let's say the priesthood, uh, we can't choose marriage and fatherhood, we lose the benefits on the one side and we gain others on the other side, but uh, this does not mean that uh, it's okay to be a bank robber uh, or, or uh, a playboy, uh, someone who fritters his time away, doesn't accomplish anything. Uh, so we're not talking about moral relativism here and I'm not embracing uh, moral relativism, but there are many possible good lives. now especially, though not exclusively, I think, but especially for those of us who are people of faith. Christians, be they Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, often in these traditions, we have the concept of a calling, what in some uh, traditions is also called a vocation. And here, I think we try to cooperate with God in discerning what God's plan is for us what for us given our talents our interests uh, our disposition uh the, the characteristics of our own interior lives trying to figure out what for us is the highest and best use of our talents am i called to be a lawyer working in a system that we hope will produce on the whole for the most part justice Am I called to be a physician, uh, a general practitioner, a surgeon, uh, a psychiatrist, what have you? Uh, Am I called to a life of business? Believe it or not, you can have a vocation uh, to business. Uh, The fact that you might make a lot of money does not mean it's not a vocation. (laughs) Uh, Am I called to marriage uh, and fatherhood or motherhood? Am I called to the priesthood? Uh, and the way people who believe in vocation who are religious believers approach that I think the right way to approach it is in prayer, meditation, and rational reflection on one's talents and interests and dispositions. Uh, I could reflect on whether uh, I am called to be an NBA basketball player, but it wouldn't take me much reflection. Uh, at five foot 10, six <laughs> years old, probably not <laughs> at this stage, but we make vocational decisions really throughout our, uh, our lives. Uh, even for those who are unbelievers, so I, I remember I said a moment ago, especially for believers, yeah. uh, but for those who are not attached to a particular faith, my experience with people is many of them still feel that in some sense they have a calling. Hmm. So when I talk to physicians, uh, of course, many physicians are believers. But when I talk to physicians who are not believers, often they talk in the language of calling or the language Hmm. of vocation. They still have a sense that this is what my talents and interests and dispositions suit me out for. This is how I can make a contribution. And vocation, calling, Nino, is all about making contributions even the calling to business, where you might make (laughs) yourself very rich, is a calling to make a contribution, a college to build, uh, I'm sorry, a calling to to build a business or or to maintain or help run uh, a business and to do it well, a business that will employ people, a business that will uh, provide good services uh, or useful goods uh, to people whose lives will be benefited uh, by those. Uh, where one uh, makes a superfluity of 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 money. Uh, There's good to be done with that money. Mm. It can be invested in ways that provide employment for other people. It can be given away charitably uh, in ways that benefit uh, people. Whenever we're talking about a calling, we're talking about service. Whenever we're talking about a vocation, we're talking about service. So my advice, and not just to young people remember, as I said, a moment ago, We make vocational decisions through our entire lives, but especially to young people. I wanna say, take seriously this idea of calling or vocation. When you're thinking, what's the good life? Think, what am I called to do? Do the audit of one's talents, one's interests, what one is drawn to, what one finds fascinating and interesting one's dispositions. And then in a very realistic way, and if you're a person of faith, draw on the resources of your faith and prayer and meditation and spiritual exercises to figure out where you can make your contribution, where you can make the highest and best use of your talents for the sake of all. A few moments ago, you mentioned
0: foundational principles and, and how we might know them. This will be my clumsy way of getting you to expand on that. We've managed to record three or four podcasts together, I think, without talking very much about natural law, which is a miracle, really. Uh, That ends today. (laughs) What is natural law, and how do we know what it is?
1: Natural law is the body of norms and principles, including moral norms and principles, that give we, intelligent creatures, human beings beings with a rational nature, beings capable of agency, our most fundamental reasons for action. We grasp, through the use of our intellects, the intrinsic, not merely instrumental, but intrinsic value, for example, of having and being a friend. We recognize that though friendship might have, I'm just using friendship as one example, there are many more, but we recognize that whatever instrumental value friendship might have, and it might have lots of instrumental value because I'm your friend, Nino, and you're also well connected with all the beautiful people. I might be invited to the best parties (laughs) or or because you have an influential father, I might be given a great job opportunity because of my friendship uh, with you. But of course, our friendship is not reducible to those instrumental benefits you and I may get out of the friendship. That is things that are extrinsic to the friendship itself to which the friendship may be a means, no. Our friendship is valuable for its own sake, and that's most fundamentally why we enter into the friendship. Indeed, if our friendship were purely instrumental, if you just wanted the extrinsic benefits of being my friend, and I wanted the extrinsic benefits of being your friend, there'd be a relationship there, but it wouldn't really be a friendship. A friendship is a friendship if, here I'm drawing, of course, on the teaching of the great Aristotle.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm willing your good for your sake and you're willing my good for my sake. And I have a greater appreciation of my good because you will it and you have a greater appreciation of your own good because I, your friend uh, will it and so forth. The famous dialectic dialectic of friendship that Aristotle describes in the Nicomachean Ethics, never been surpassed. Uh, That's what friendship is. And we value it for that reason. Same with intellectual knowledge. Same with the, the appreciation of beauty the same with the preservation of human life and health all of these ends or purposes give us reasons for action whose intelligibility as reasons doesn't depend on some deeper reason or further reason or subrational motivating factor to which they are means so those basic human goods as uh, some natural lawyers call them those basic human goods are the referents, R-E-F-E, R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, the reference uh, of what St. Thomas Aquinas, the great natural law theorist of the Middle Ages, called the first principles of practical reason. They direct our action toward what is intelligibly choice-worthy for its own sake and away from its privations, toward friendship, and away from animosity between people, bad relations, toward knowledge, away from ignorance, Toward beauty, away from what's ugly and awful, uh, toward the preservation of human life and health, away from disease and 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 uh, things that can uh, undo our uh, physical uh, well-being, and so forth and so on. Those are the first principles. So natural law includes those first principles, but it also includes the body of principles. Now we're moving to what I might call moral principles. Those first principles are uh, not strictly speaking uh, moral principles, or if they are, they're incipiently so. Mm. They guide our choosing an action and will be what's behind our choosing an action, whether we choose an act in the end in a morally upright way or not. We're still acting on the reason for action provided by friendship, even if we do a bad thing like lie, tell a lie to protect the reputation of a friend. Mm. So they're only incipiently moral principles but now we're going to move to moral principles those are the principles that are specifications of the integral directiveness of those first principles of practical reason if we take the human good as a whole what might be called integral human flourishing integral human well-beings we take it as a whole and we ask ourselves on what principles would we act if we were to be directed exclusively by those principles of practical reason if we were fully reasonable, in other words, and not deflected away from what we should do by any kind of wayward emotion or vice, greed, anger, lust, ill will, prejudice, what have you, what would those principles be? And that's how we identify, for example, the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, or what's sometimes called the Pauline principle, don't do something in itself bad, even for the sake of good consequences. What your mother had in mind when she said, uh, even a very good end doesn't justify a bad means. Mm. Uh, Or more specific, uh, less general moral principles, like do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness against your neighbor and so forth. Or very, very specific norms, like don't hit your sister. (laughs) That's a moral principle. How is it a moral? It's a specification, it it is what it means to act with respect toward all the basic principles of practical reason, all the human goods which together constitute the ideal, never fully realizable, of course, it's an ideal of integral human well-being or integral human flourishing. So there's a philosophical account of what natural law is. Those who are familiar with the New Testament, Christians and others, will recognize the natural law as what St. Paul has in mind in his letter to the Romans, when he says that there is a law written on our hearts, Hmm. a law written on the hearts, even of the Gentiles, that is the people who don't have the law of Moses, the law that enables them to have a basic moral understanding that some things are right and wrong. And St. Paul tells us that this law written on the hearts, even of the Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses is sufficient to hold people accountable for their actions. Hmm. That's what makes people different from crocodiles and lions. We, we don't fault the crocodile or declare him to be immoral for eating the wildebeest. We don't fault the lion for bringing down the gazelle. They're not rational creatures. They're not agents. They don't have free will. They're not capable of being guided by moral principles. There is no such thing as moral principles for lions or moral principles for crocodiles. But there are moral principles for human beings because we are rational and free. We are agents. And this, St. Paul says, applies to everyone, which means that what we know of moral truth is not exclusively what we get from Scripture. There are some moral truths that we know even without the benefit of Scripture. There are some uh, moral truths that when we explore them, understand them philosophically, shed light on what scripture teaches. I I think that's true, for example, with respect to the whole idea of marriage, Hmm. that that the idea of marriage is articulated in Genesis 2, the man shall leave his mother and home and cleave unto his wife and the two will be one flesh. Only becomes really clear in its meaning when we do a philosophical analysis to understand how it could be the case hmm. that two separate biologically distinct human beings, a man and a woman, can become, in fact, uh, one, one flesh. So sometimes reason illuminates the data of revelation. To believe in natural law is not to suppose that there can be no revealed truth about morality, it's not to be contemptuous of revealed truth about morality. Most natural law theorists, not all. Most are believers and most believe that scripture helps to cast a very important light even on what can be known by reason. Sometimes by reason we can only see through a glass darkly and revelation helps to illuminate the situation. But it works the other way too, as I mentioned with respect, for example, to the example of marriage. Sometimes we understand the teaching of scripture, we understand the revelation more fully in light of our rational exploration, our philosophical analysis, doing the work of natural law theorizing. And then finally, I would say, uh, Nino, that uh, it is our standing as agents, as creatures subject to the natural law, to the norms that are identifiable by reason and not simply by revelation, that uh, we see clearly in scripture, when we're taught in Genesis 1 that the human being, unlike all the other entities God creates, including the animals, the non-human animals, so including the crocodile and the lion, that the human being is made in the very image and likeness of God. After all, what could that mean? It, it can't mean that God has five fingers on each of two hands and hair on his head on a nose. God's an immaterial creature, a spiritual creature, uh, not even a creature. Creature the wrong word. is a is a spiritual reality, uh, not a creature. Uh, so it can't be physical. So if it's not physical, if we're not godlike in our physical being, in what ways are we godlike? What what do we see in us that tells us something about what God is in fact like? it's because we like God, are agents, Hmm. we have rationality and freedom. Now, we're very limited, our freedom and our rationality are limited in ways that God is not we are finite, God is infinite. We're very, very, very imperfect. God is perfect. But nevertheless, scripture is telling the truth. What God has chosen to do for us is to endow us with the powers of reason and freedom. Those godlike, literally awesome powers to envisage a state of affairs that does not exist, grasp the intelligible point, the purpose, the value of bringing that state of affairs into existence, and then acting freely on the basis of our rational grasp, our reason about the point and value of bringing it into existence to bringing it into existence and not be acting like a brute animal exclusively on impulse or instinct. We do have impulses, we do have instincts, but we also have reason and we have freedom. We can choose on the basis of our rational grasp of the intelligible point of friendship to enter into a friendship. We can choose on the basis of our rational grasp of the intelligible value of knowledge to pursue the study of cell biology or Shakespeare or the causes of the first world war or any other subject that we choose rationally because we see the intelligible point of pursuing to pursue.
0: You've had a a very long and interesting and successful career. You've met interesting people, traveled to interesting places, been mentored by amazing people and mentored amazing people in return. Two questions for you. One, what has surprised you most about yourself, about others, about life in general, and then, and two, I suppose it's related in some ways, what's the most important lesson you've learned?
1: Well, I have had, as you say, I've just been blessed to have so many remarkable experiences, but I can tell you about one that's lasting
2: Mm.
1: and one that taught me a real lesson, uh, a lesson that I need to learn more deeply, frankly, Mm. and this continues with me. I think it was in the early 2000s when I was invited to meet then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger before he became Pope Benedict XVI. This was during the pontificate of Pope John Paul II. Uh, And the circumstances were that uh, I was a keynote speaker and he was a keynote speaker. I was one day and he was the second day at a conference uh, for the American bishops being held in Dallas, Texas. He had come over to the country to attend the conference and to speak. And he was there on the first day and was in the audience for my talk. I remember I was speaking on conscience and the importance of the concept of conscience and trying to explain that conscience isn't just a a feeling or an intuition, much less a little grasshopper on your shoulder or something like that. That conscience really is our last best judgment about what we are required to do and not do in view of the norms of morality that specify uh, uh, what it means uh, to act consistently with a will to integral human fulfillment. So I had a big agenda uh, with my speech to the bishops. Well, after my speech, Cardinal Ratzinger, who had been sitting in the front row, was the first to come up and congratulate. me, And he did so very kindly. And I was struck immediately by his humility, he, he just presented himself as a person who happened to be in the crowd, like with a normal audience and somebody comes up and he congratulates you and says, that was a very fine speech and you made some very important points, and I'm really grateful and so forth and so on. And I was struck by the man's humility. And then he was first, but then other bishops came up and they were sort of standing back because he, was talking to me. So they were standing a step or two away. And when he noticed that, he took two steps back into the crowd so that the other bishops could come forward and talk to me. Hmm. And he stood there in the crowd. And I just marveled at the man's humility. He was the second-ranking figure in the Catholic Church. He was definitely the big shot at this meeting. Uh, He was a famous, distinguished theologian as important a man as I'd ever met uh, and yet there was that humility and I experienced that Nino you know, in a circumstance I was still a pretty young scholar then in which I was feeling the opposite of humility I was in <laughs> great pride here I was in front of the Catholic bishops of the United States with Cardinal Ratzinger prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith sitting in the front row and I was telling them what's for I was giving them the, the gospel. I was, I was telling them what I think and what they should think. Man, you couldn't help a young guy like me. I couldn't help feeling a lot of pride. And then I, I experience this witness to humility. Someone, by the way, for whom that was not his reputation. Hmm. It, it, you might, you're, you're young, you, know, you, know, you won't remember this. He, he was sometimes regarded, especially by people on the left, Catholics on the left who didn't like him as uh, the Pope's Rottweiler, as a tough, aggressive person, not somebody you would associate with humility. Now, I knew that that was a slander. I didn't buy that. I didn't believe any of that nonsense. But I wasn't aware of his humility, which I experienced so deeply. And that had a lasting effect. Now, am I as humble as Pope Benedict? No. Am I humble at all? I fail. (laughs) Should I be a lot more humble? Yes. I'm trying, failing, trying to fail better next time or not fail as badly next time. But I do have the blessing of that experience and that role model. And it has stayed with me from the moment that it happened.
0: It's a very confusing time uh, to be a young woman or young man in America, perhaps especially for conservatives. Are are there specific men or women you think our current young men and women should be looking to as models or certain books they should read or traits they should cultivate? Well, here comes
1: some pride. I was just talking about (laughs) humility. And, And there's no way I can fight off this pride because I am so proud of the young men and women that I'm going to now tell you about. Uh, These are my students. These are some of my star students. I've been blessed over my 36 years uh, at Princeton uh, with with a few stints at Harvard as well, as a visiting professor to teach the most extraordinary young men and women. I mean, off the charts, brilliant. And often not just brilliant, but people with such wonderful hearts. And sometimes exemplifying some noble virtues, such as courage and the people I'm going to mention now, and there's always a risk when you mention some people in a class, you're gonna leave out people that deserve to be mentioned. So I apologize for to, to those of my students who really deserve to be mentioned here, uh, who I don't get to or don't remember right off the top of my uh, head. But the people I'm going to mention are people who are not only distinguished for their utter brilliance, but for their courage, their willingness to speak the truth as best they understand the truth. When the truth is hard to speak, and cultural conditions that make it even dangerous to your career, to your future, to speak the truth. I'm gonna mention Sharif Girgis, now professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, my co-author together with Ryan Anderson of What is Marriage, Man and Woman, A Defense. Here is a profoundly courageous young scholar, also extraordinarily brilliant who has done so much while still less than 40 years old to advance the cause of knowledge when it comes to the relationship of law and morality to specific moral questions, uh, especially those where the question of public policy is very much uh, at stake. Uh, Sharif is just an extraordinary young scholar. I mentioned Ryan Anderson our other co-author on what is marriage, man and woman of defense. Utterly brilliant, so courageous. He does not back down. He's someone who is going to speak the truth as God gives him to see the truth, no matter what the consequences or risks for himself. That's courage. Melissa Muskela. Ryan is now the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So Young people, Look to Ryan Anderson. Look to Sharif Guresh. You want a role model there. Hmm. Melissa Muskela, my doctoral student at Princeton, had studied as an undergraduate at Harvard under Harvey Mansfield. Harvey sent her up to me for her PhD. Brilliant young philosopher. Has written the definitive book on the philosophy of parents' rights, published by Cambridge University Press. The book, To Whom Do Children Belong? This young woman is off the charts good. And again, courageous. She will speak unpopular truths, truths that are unpopular with our power elite today. Truths about the sanctity of human life, the dignity of marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife, religious freedom. She will go into any crowd, any group, any forum, no matter how hostile and stand her ground and tell the truth and patiently and lovingly answer challenges and criticisms. Rabbi Mayer Soloveitchik Another of my greatest students. I think the most important Jewish public intellectual of our time here in the United States. I think the true successor to my late friend, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of England, when it just comes to bringing the wisdom of the Jewish tradition uh, to the larger culture. Uh, Rabbi Sachs did that so brilliantly. Now Rabbi Soloveitchik does it uh, so brilliantly. I am so enormously proud of him. My student Daniel Mark, another Orthodox Jewish scholar, professor at Villanova University in uh, political science, teaches constitutional law and political theory. Brilliant, courageous. Anna Samuel, now the leader of Canavox, my student at Princeton who went on for her PhD in political theory at um, Notre Dame University. Uh, now uh, with the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton, leading KanaVox, which is a pro-marriage organization. It's an organization, really, of women for the most part, uh, who support each other in their marriages and help to communicate a sound understanding of marriage and a solid set of uh, principles for sustaining strong uh, marriages. Jose Joel Alessia, Another of my former students, now a professor at the Catholic University of America Law School, uh, studied at, at Princeton, was graduated with about every honor a student could get at Princeton. His parents had to drive a pickup truck to drive away all those awards and prizes at, uh, at graduation. Uh, went on to clerk for Justice Alito at the Supreme Court, which uh, Sharif Girgis uh, also did, by the way. Uh, and then uh, to uh, uh, law firm work with the great firm of uh, Cooper and Kirk in Washington, D.C., and then over to uh, Catholic uh, University. Uh, well, uh, there are many others, uh, Nino, that I should mention, but there, right off the top of my head, a group of inspiring young men and women representing different traditions of, of faith, uh, operating in different spheres, some in education, some in religion, some in law. Uh, but exemplifying not only brilliance, but courage and integrity. That's another word that I I wanna mention here because it's so important. When you think about how should I live my life? We talked about that earlier. Make sure you're living your life with integrity. Mm -hmm. Say what you mean, mean what you say. No double talk, no double speak. Be on the outside who you are on the inside. That's what it means to have integrity. Integrity also, of course, requires honesty, being honest with others, but also being honest with yourself. And these days to have integrity also requires courage. Courage and integrity support each other. If you have one, you're likely to have the other because you need it. So uh, Nino, there, again, just off the top of my head, and again, with apologies to the many other students that uh, I should be mentioning courageous, humble,
0: honest, what else? What what are we missing? What are the traits that our young men and women should be looking to cultivate? Well, I
1: talked about integrity as well as honesty. Obviously, those are uh, connected virtues. Uh, I want to stress today the importance of courage, really important, probably more important than it was early in my uh, career. Uh, It's tough today to speak the truth if you believe the truth as I do is often completely out of sync with the views of the most wealthy, powerful, important, influential forces. It's all really a matter Nino, of getting your values straight. And, and Cornel West, my beloved friend, Cornel West and I, when we go around the country preaching our gospel together, our gospel of integrity and honesty, courage, uh, we, we, we really lay a lot of emphasis uh on the idea that you've got to think for yourself be independent-minded uh and you you have to be willing because the day it always comes when it's necessary to stand up to your own tribe or clan or party or group this is another very important thing for young people to understand There is no such thing as the party or tribe or clan or group that is always right. (laughs) (laughs) We frail, fallible, fallen human beings get things wrong. We get things wrong as individuals. We get things wrong as groups. And yet we're very tribal creatures, we humans. We're tribal critters. We naturally want to be part of a tribe. But tribes make demands on us. Your tribe might be your political party your ideological movement. Uh, They make demands. They don't like it when people dissent. They want everybody to be team players. You got to be on board. Well, the day is going to come inevitably, whether you're on the left or the right. Cornell's had this experience on the left, I've had it on the right. The day will come when what you think doesn't line up with the party line. And so you have to stand up and be willing to say no. That takes integrity, that takes courage, that takes honesty, that takes independence of mind. All those virtues have to be in play or else you're just going to become an ideologue, a dogmatist, somebody who just parrots the party line, a hack. Don't be that. Don't be a hack. Don't be a partisan. Don't be an ideologue. Now, that does not mean don't be persons of convictions. When Cornell and I go around the country spreading our gospel, the most common question we encounter from young people, young men and women, is, But Professor George and Professor West, if I take your advice and be open-minded, that's how they characterize what they hear from us. They say, if I take your advice and be open-minded, then how can I be a person of conviction? How can I act? How can I be an activist? How can I take a stand? Won't I always be worrying? Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong. They worry that if they recognize their own fallibility, They'll be paralyzed when it comes to action. And Cornell and I answer that the same way. Look at the two of us. Both of us are people of conviction. We both act in the public sphere. We both take bold stands. We are both outspoken. Both of us sometimes upset our own party. And yet at the same time, we recognize our fallibility and the need to be in dialogue with people who disagree with us, the need to be in dialogue with each other because Cornell and I disagree about so many political issues. We need to be in dialogue with each other because that's the only way we are able to figure out when we're wrong or partially wrong or in some sense in need of revision of our. If we close ourselves off to criticism, if we immunize ourselves from critique, then we will never hear anything but the views of people who reinforce our views. And since we all know we're wrong about some things, we just don't know what they are, we all know that there's some false beliefs in our heads, we'll never get those false beliefs swapped out for true beliefs. If there's any swapping out that's going to happen, it's going to be because we allow ourselves to be challenged and forced to rethink and to revise. So I believe it's a false problem, this alleged problem that if we are, quote, open-minded, unquote, if we recognize our own fallibility, which I think is a better way to put it, we'll be paralyzed and won't be able to act and won't be people of conviction. I just think that's false. Well, with that, we've reached the
0: end of our time together in the end of this first season of Madison's Notes. Uh, Robbie, there's so much more I'd like to ask you, so much more I'd like to say. Uh, but for now, I'll just leave it at thank you.
1: Nino, thank you, and thank you for your years of service uh, to the Madison program. We hate to be saying goodbye to you. You're moving on uh, to married life and uh, to the next step in in your uh, in your career. You've been such a blessing to the Madison program. Yes, as host of the Madison's Note, Notes podcast, but also in so many other ways, uh, you remain a beloved member of the family. You are welcome back, and we hope to see you as often as possible uh, in Princeton. Thanks for all that you've done to contribute to the success and the work of the Madison program. Thank you, Robbie. Well, there you
0: have it, Madisonians. I can't thank you enough for all of your support over the past 52 episodes. Though this was my last episode as host, fear not. Madison's notes will continue and only get better. So be sure to follow the James Madison program on social media and join our mailing list for information about season two. With that, we'll bring this season to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Madison's Notes.